Meow, sexplorers. I am invoking my feline, one of my feline archetypes right now, um, particularly in certain aspects of my feminine sexuality. I feel very cat-like. Um, it's a fun energy to play with. So this episode is exploring um, these different expressions of ourselves, and we also look at history of these archetypes and the times before patriarchy when there was goddess culture um, and how these myths and stories have shifted over the times to represent cultural beliefs. It is all very fascinating to me. This is stuff that I study and um, there's so much to learn and reclaim about this time. And it's something that we're doing in my training at the Artemis School, my training in women's holistic sexuality, is looking at this time, these myths, um, and beyond myth, like the reality of where women were, how women were revered um, in culture, and their real, true sexual expression and autonomy at this time before we had more of a monotheistic male god um, viewpoint. So Shakti Sunfire, or Laura Blakeman, um, is going to be teaching at the Artemis School on these subjects, and that's one of the reasons I invited her on to talk about this. And I am so excited to announce that I am offering a full scholarship to this year's Artemis School certification program. So please go to artemisschool.com and fill out that application for one woman who really could not make it happen financially, who really needs that support and is really committed to this work for herself and in service of all beings. I imagine we're going to get a lot of inquiries. So yes, please, artemisschool.com, fill that out as soon as you can. And without further ado, here's the show. It's loud. Yeah. Okay. Loud is what we want. Yeah. Okay. Even though I can hear myself swallowing and there's like spit. These are, yeah. Okay. It's sensitive. Sensitive microphones. <laughs> are we calling you Laura or Shakti or both? How are we doing that? I mean, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Yeah. I think both because I'll maybe refer to both in the story. Mm. Maybe. We'll see how that comes out. I don't know, but that's a, kind of a big piece of the story. Okay. Is that arch- that name? Okay. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Um. Yeah. So we're here with my friend and my roommate, <laughs> <laughs> and where to begin? I mean, I don't even know. Okay. So I wanted to talk to you about archetypes and sexuality and we're going to talk about what the hell that means in a moment and also because we geek out on this stuff all the time and I also asked you to teach at my training coming up so we're in deeper discussion about this exploration 
So why don't we just define like what an archetype is even? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great place to start. (laughs) (laughs) Because it is a word that's thrown around quite a bit, Mm -hmm. archetype. And I think the, um, you know, I'm not actually certain of this, but I'm pretty certain that the original word was used by Carl Jung. Mm -hmm. And archetype means original pattern. So the way that I think about archetypes is that they, uh, they exist, whether we recognize them or not, that they pervade and infuse all things. So not just, you know, one of the ways we talk about archetypes or think about archetypes as like the different voices of ourselves speaking so that we are as a whole human being a woven tapestry of voices and each one of those voices has a different essence or a different uh, archetypal pattern that is um, the same pattern that we might find in nature or that we might find in our movies or in our favorite books and uh, so an archetype is a voice that every human being no matter what their background is, what their socioeconomic situation is, what their culture is, what their belief systems are, they can we can all understand that archetype. So a very basic example of that would be like the warrior warrioress. You know, we all have an aspect of a of self that really wants to fight for something worth fighting for. So that's just a very basic example of archetypes and how we might understand them. Okay, cool. And so let's talk about how you got into archetypes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and your what you know what you do with them or how you interact with them. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's a hard question to answer because I feel like I've always tracked the threads of story. Uh, ever since I was a little girl, I've loved stories. I've loved storytelling. Um, I've loved to read. And I've also really been committed my entire life to seeking uh, what else is there to really be in a place of wonder, both um, of the world and also of my inner world. What, what more can I learn about myself? What more is there? And so, you know, I think this is pre being conscious at all about tracking certain archetypal images but uh but that that impulse has always been there and um it started to get uh more conscious when i really began to uh dive beyond what i've identified or many people have identified as the ways in which we are shaped by the culture that we grew up in, that we live in, that we're subsumed by. And uh, that comes, that impulse, that desire comes out of that same question. Well, what more is there? What pieces of me have I severed? What pieces of me do I not allow to come to the forefront? What pieces of me are celebrated by the societies that we live in? Mm. And in what ways have I, in some ways, like overemphasized or overdeveloped certain voices at the expense of others? So it really came out of a spiritual practice, I guess I would say, and also a, a practice of, of just basic psychology and curiosity. Yeah, I think I think I want to root that psych- psychological piece. Like, I think, you know, I think you're right. Like, Jung did coin this term, or mm-hmm. he, he at least developed a lot of um, literature and uh, theory around archetypes. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so looking at it as aspects is another way of looking at it as aspects of psychology. I'm always thinking of the people that are listening that might be skeptical mm-hmm. um, or not live in Southern California. <laughs> um, yeah, so yeah, different psychological aspects. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. And this idea of, I think you said it, or maybe I said it a while back, that uh, each of these archetypal voices um, are one of the ways I think about it is like the woven tapestry of uh, our inner world. So this is like the full psychological um, landscape. Yeah. Right. And and so just to to wrap up where I was going Mm -hmm. with that, that journey of the discovery process in light of the culture that I grew up in. Like, for instance, I grew up in a family where the intellectual voice and the capacity to debate and to rationalize and to reduce uh, is was celebrated. That was the way. Like, if something couldn't be explained, intellectually speaking, if something couldn't be argued and won, then it didn't, you know, it wasn't like it was tossed out of the window. It's just it didn't really take a seat at the table. Mm. So... I began to question that. Well, is that what my family does? It does. Is that what modern Western society does? And um, and that led me down a path of discovering. Oh, there's these other these other voices that just have never actually gotten a chance to be celebrated or heard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Okay. And then. So how, okay, so let's stay with you. Mm -hmm. I'm like, sex, sex, no. (laughs) Let's get into the sex part. Um, Let's stay with you for a moment and talk a little bit about, um, yeah, how, because I know you're, you kind of work with people around this stuff and Mm -hmm. like, so why or how does this become practical? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How does this become a tool? Right. Yeah. No. And I and I love that because I I'm, I'm very big on grounding information, giving giving a practical playing field for understanding this. And one of the things that I was thinking about the other day as I was writing was a, um, you know, we see all the time the the rising feminine movement mm-hmm. that really is happening globally. Like many many women now are becoming interested in not the story of patriarchy versus matriarchy, but this whole other realm, uh, Joanna, Joanna Macy and others call it the great turning, right? Mm. We're in a time that, um, you know, it's just reflected in, especially in, I'm trying to be sensitive, but I want to say in Cal- in Southern California or in California in general, there's a lot of programming around the returning feminine and what that's really like to be in balance with the masculine. And as I was feeling into that, I was thinking that to dive into archetypes, which is kind of to dive into the mythic realms, is uh, is to dive into the feminine, actually. Mm. Because one of the ways that we can look at that is uh, to be in myth, to be in uh, relationship to all of these different flavors of self is to activate muscles that have been atrophied in our culture. So uh, muscles like the imagination, Mm -hmm. like our emotional intelligence, Mm -hmm. like our physical intelligence. And again, just to make it personal for me, I uh, grew up a tomboy, (laughs) was really interested in doing everything my brother was doing, and I overtly rejected everything feminine. 
uh, everything that our culture said was feminine. So Barbie dolls and pink toenail polish and all of that. And it wasn't until I picked up a hula hoop, which has been my main practice of embodiment about 10 years ago, that I began to find myself in a space where I had a relationship with the feminine for the very first time. Hmm. And it wasn't an intellectual relationship. It was a physical one. Mm -hmm. It was a physical one that moved in uh, ways, hip swaying, circular, spirillic ways that, again, in general, our culture isn't like applauding those kinds of movements. So it's a, uh, and that gave way to me being in touch with my emotives, my emotional self for the first time. And my imaginal capacity and that's that's the big one that I want to emphasize uh, imagination is a way of knowing mm. it's a faculty of knowing mm. that is equal to our cognitive intelligence it's equal to if not more than and I and that's a big claim mm-hmm. but if we think of um, the creative process, right? All things are creative. We are here as creative beings. That creativity has to come from the unseen. It has mm. to come from a space that isn't rational, that isn't reductionistic, that isn't logical. Something has to be dreamed for something to be born. So it's in, in a sense, it's the, the foundation of everything that then we get to analyze and dissect and take apart, mm. which I... Uh, understand is more of a masculine way of point A to point B, linear thinking. Um, So it's practical in that it is to dive into our own mythic stories and to really get a sense of of all of the voices of us that are speaking and what ones of us haven't been able to speak for a long time is a way of stepping into wholeness. And it's also a way of exercising, again, these atrophied muscles that are crucial to a full and whole human experience mm-hmm. yeah I was doing I was in a, a class and we were doing an exercise where everyone um, they put names of different like celebrities or famous figures on our backs and then um, well actually this isn't the point we first <laughs> played a game with it but then we were once we figured out who we were we were embodying them and I like because you use the word flavor, which made me think of this. And this is a really practical kind of um, example for people. Then we were invited to to try on the flavor of that person to mm-hmm. and this was an, a tantric practice. Mm-hmm. So the idea was like you could bring in different parts of yourself, different characters, different flavors to play with, maybe not all the time, but to widen your spectrum of experience mm-hmm. and to yeah, exercise those muscles that you don't use. Mm-hmm. 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 Which keeps things, you know, And then the idea is like that keeps it interesting in a longer term relationship. It's like, oh, you can actually bring these different archetypes or ways of being or flavors into your relationship. You're relating your sex life and all of a sudden you're, you know, Jessica Rabbit or. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're in that creative play space. Yeah. 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 Yeah, One of the things that uh, I just hit me, Martine Prechtel, um, He's an amazing author, writer, shaman, uh, lived for years and years of his life among the Mayan people in Guatemala. 
And he talks of their uh, cosmology, their understanding of the world as uh, one that when you are when you were born, you're not fully human yet. And uh, so as you are developing, your main task is to become fully human. Hmm. And what that you know, of course, that I'm not going to that's where I'll leave their tradition. But the way that I interpret that and the way that I've uh, felt about that is the more that we expand our uh, concept of, well, everything, but especially who we are and what we're capable of. And the more we affirm even those voices of us that society doesn't accept or that we've swept under the rug or made small, the more that we step into that, it's like the more that we bloom. And so one of the things I've been playing with recently is what if our only task is to bloom and mm-hmm. to become in that process fully human, to be, uh, you know, another way you can say it is to live a really full life. And, you know, again, we live in a society right now that wants to put things in boxes and keep things small. And that includes human beings, you know, cookie cutter shapes, of yeah. what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. I believe, I mean, that's the way I'm, I'm just gonna, mm-hmm. I want you, you're, yeah, to you be want, right up in okay, the mic. Um, I, I mean, that's kind of how my philosophy of life, like how can I be the most full expression of mm-hmm. a human being and the most expansive human being? I, yeah, mm-hmm. that's, I believe that's what we're doing here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, in every way. And, you know, again, from, from personal experience, I've, I've been in a, in a, well, we all do, you know, been in a chapter of my life where I, looking back now, can see how small I was living, how small mm-hmm. I was keeping myself. Um, and, you know, I'm still in that process of blooming. It's, I don't think it ever, it ever ends, but I will say that as I get older and more courageous to go against uh, belief systems and, and again, social norms, the more fulfilled I am and the more full my days and the more genuine my interactions and the more juicy my relationships and uh, the more I get to be surprised by what, it's not like an egoic what I'm capable of, but it is a tapping into creativity that is, uh, you just, you get a sense that there's really no you know, the mythic and archetype in general, it's called an original pattern, but it it can go so deep and we won't really ever know the end of that Mm. juicy well. So Mm -hmm. it's been a a nice journey. Mm. (laughs) Can you give an example of the feeling, you know, when we say I was staying small, like Mm -hmm. the quality or the feeling or what that looks like in, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that the one of the ways that was really helpful to me, um, well, I'll give you the example first. There is a time in all of our lives, and it's my belief that there are likely many times in our life where we kind of look, look around, take inventory, and get a sense that uh, there's got to be more than this. Mm-hmm. that I've painted myself into a corner or even if it's not to me it wasn't even that tangible I mean my business was successful I was developing a, a name and a brand image for myself I was um, you know on all outer anybody that would look from the outside would say oh she's she's doing it she's doing her thing she's living her life she's um, you know making art making beauty and yet 
for me, there was just a, uh, Joseph Campbell calls it the call, f- the call to adventure. There mm. was a call to adventure, something that was like, there's got to be more than this. There's, I want to get more real. It's like a basic human longing that when your needs are taken care of, just your, your survival needs, then there's something else that comes in that says, but what really are you here to do? Mm-hmm. What really are you living into the world? What, how, you know, what is the dream that the earth ha- wants to dream through you? And uh, that was up for me. And, and it started me on a journey of a deeper discovering. And I'm not talking going from one workshop to the next, which I had done for a very long time. It was more a, a really deep commitment to start embodying uh, even aspects or places in myself that were uncomfortable. So more shadow, even shadow material. Shadow is what we don't know about ourselves. Um, so yeah, it began the whole hero or heroine's journey was this mm-hmm. call to adventure, and that's traditionally how it's talked about. And then looking back, one of the ways that has really helped me understand the difference between the too small story and the yearning or the longing to live into our greater mythos uh, is a shift that can happen for people at all different ages from an egocentric consciousness to an eco-centric consciousness. Mm. Ego, of course, we know that word. That word is thrown around quite a bit, and uh, ego is not necessarily a bad thing, right? It's absolutely necessary to develop a very strong sense of self. That's what our whole youth up into adolescence is for, and we we do it. (laughs) Many of us do it. Um, But if we stay there as uh, very concerned about belonging, adolescence is concerned about belonging into the larger social network or web which is a basic human need as well. Mm-hmm. If we stay there, then we find ourselves living maybe just a shade of all of the creativity that wants to come through. Because the human structure is um, always needs to be an evolution. Mm. And so as we grow, each generation as they grow needs to expand upon the structure that's there. But if we're concerned about belonging, mm. we're just, we're stuck playing the belonging game so what this looks like well many things to many people but a lot of people it looks like climbing the ladder you know or maybe this has just been my I'll speak from my experience climbing the ladder becoming well known making a lot of money success um, you know all of these ideas of security getting the relationship that I want you know all of it just planning out my life to a T it's a small story Mm. it's a small story that's not that's not what I'm here to do Mm -hmm. that's not what I that's not what we look back on Mm -hmm. and say oh yeah you know I made $150,000 a year my first year in business you know I mean we don't yeah yeah they're little successes but that's not the story and so ecocentric consciousness is um, a way of understanding yourself that is uh, a part of the dreaming of the earth Mm which is everything that you do is, uh, is touched into that mythic realm. Because the mythic realm is, uh, in a way, the, um, the wild and free creative force that is radical and that is in service of the larger whole. Mm. And, and we can't help that. When we make that shift or when we have that knock on our door, 
our work becomes a creative overflow, right? Mm-hmm. We fill up because actually standing in your your uh, your full wholeness is like uh, like standing in the center of the medicine wheel. And uh, so, yeah, let me explain that the center of the medicine wheel, like being in the center of 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 um, being in your wholeness. I'm just going to say that because yeah. I think everybody can understand that. Yeah. Uh, being in your wholeness, letting everything flow through you, trusting that there is uh, a creative dance that we're called into in mm-hmm. this lifetime. And so it's a, a creative uh, overflowing. Your work becomes of service necessarily and that doesn't necessarily that doesn't have to look like something grandiose you know we don't Mm -hmm. all become like massive uh superstar names or whatever you know or saving the world in any overt way it can happen in very subtle ways but um but the the shift the fundamental identification point is this story about me or is it actually about living a larger dream into existence Mm -hmm. so yeah, hopefully that. Yeah, that's, clear. that's great. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I think people can identify with that, and I'm f- feeling into like different phases in my own life and development, and where there's like you described, like this feeling of like something missing, mm-hmm. because the longing, the the desire, the knowing of something more, I feel like is always there, but it's it's answering the call as you said and and so there is always something more Mm -hmm. there's always desire and longing um it's just moving from this place of feeling like something's missing Mm -hmm. versus like moving into and um being in curiosity and inquiry and uh flowing and yeah Mm -hmm. with a longing yeah and moving from like i'm missing something to oh this longing is delicious yeah 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 and one of the major ways that i marked that for myself and it does look different for everyone i think you nailed it moving from a place of uh lack yes like i need more i need more and a lot of that comes from fear right mm-hmm. fear of whatever it might be or scarcity or belong you know there are, there's a lot of major themes out there um to a sense of sacred urgency mm. so sacred urgency to me comes from knowing what my you know we don't i don't think we ever fully know what our what our mytho what our larger mythos is but standing in the knowing of of who I am, what I'm here to do on a soul level, mm. and knowing also that I have a finite amount of time, that there is, and this is not like, oh my goodness, I'll never get everything done, but there is a very, okay, we're here, at least my cosmology, the way I understand the world, is we're here with a very specific purpose mm. that only we can do, that only we can be, an art project that only we can uh paint Mm -hmm. (laughs) and so it gives me a sense of sacred urgency Mm. of uh which leads to discernment Mm. yeses and nos get really clear really quick is this something that is contributing to the art project of of my life and the niche that i'm here to express in the world or is this a knee-jerk reaction out of scarcity or fear beautiful yeah yeah 
Great. Yeah. Clarity. Mm-hmm. Mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. Sex. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's like we have a lot of podcasts that, you know, we, we don't even talk about sex. It's all because it's all sex, really. Well, it's just fun to say sex. Yeah, yeah it is all sex. <laughs> exactly. Um, okay. So, yeah, let's bring it, but let's bring it back to, yeah, you know, the relationship. And, and specifically, I think, obviously, because you identify as a, a female woman, the feminine. Mm-hmm. So you're steeped in these feminine archetypes. Yeah. So that's really what what we're exploring mm-hmm. um and and so i yeah i don't even know the question because usually these are just conversations we have when we're hanging out yeah it's like <laughs> how to lead in <laughs> um which we are right now but mm-hmm. yeah so the connection between yeah let's talk about how let's get specific what i want to say is like let's get specific now yeah. about mm-hmm. some archetypes mm-hmm. um who they might be, how they show up, and give it examples of like, yeah, the different flavors. Mm-hmm. That's where I want to go to mm-hmm. the different flavors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so different archetypes, there are uh, infinite archetypes, right? Infinite patterns and voices. And some of them, uh, many women will be familiar with. The most basic that's often talked about for uh, a, wo- a woman's life process is the mother, the maiden, and the crone, or the maiden, mother, crone, which, um, you know, bring in, if we think of those three just as a, as a touchstone, maiden, of course, is that youthful energy that is bubbling and excited and full of wonder and fresh perspective, and the whole life stretches ahead of you, and it's, so it's this very fresh, very innocent uh youthful but high energy right we can all feel it we feel it immediately in our bodies because not only does it live in the maiden archetype but it also lives in the rising sun or maybe even uh like if we just picture uh we'll just go there right now picturing the dawn seeing the sun rise up over the horizon and getting a sense of how you feel in that moment when Mm -hmm. the sun peaks up over the ridge and the wind picks up and it's cool and maybe there's birds flying across the sky and there's just the whole day stretches ahead of you. You've just had a great night's sleep. You're inquisitive. I wonder what the day holds, right? There's some excitement. So it's that same, that's what I mean about how they exist you know, as an archetype, as kind of a thing that we can analyze and study that that would be made in and also in nature. And then inside of us, we have the maiden archetype that shows up regardless of age. So this is how Mm. we get to play with them. The one of you that wants to pick up a hula hoop and like just uh, flail, right? Play as if nobody is watching or what's that quote? Dance as if nobody's watching. It's the one of you that isn't afraid to try something new and to be terrible at it, mm-hmm. right? It's the one of you that is curious, just infinitely curious. And so it's that voice that comes up every now and again that says, hey, lighten up, you know, lighten up. Let's do this. And it's never too late. We've got the whole day. We've got our whole lives. We've got this whole you know, whatever stretching in front of you. So that's just a very basic example. And you can go through mother and uh, crone in a similar way. Um, 
some of the specifics, so the different forms in mythology. Now, archetypes are really related to mythology. That's where we see them the mm-hmm. most. Um, and is that, where did that piece come in? I mean, yeah. yeah, where did that, how did, is that how they were always described or? As mythological characters? Yeah. Is that what you're? Yeah. I don't. You know, again, I, because I haven't studied Young's work, which right. I would say he's the one that really, like you said, coined that term and created a whole psychology around it. Um, even though archetypes have been used, that pattern way of thinking of it has been used way before Young. Yeah, they again, like I like I want to say that we're infu- infused by these archetypes. All things are their patterns. Well, and so and these myths go back as long as. Time, you know, people have existed. We've yeah. lived through these myths, and actually, that storytelling and mythology was really part of culture in mm-hmm. a more distinct way than I think it is now, or at least in a different way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And so, mythology was that way of of telling the story of these patterns, of telling the stories of uh, nature that be, that's become personified. You know, mm-hmm. like just to bring us back to that example, Aurora, the goddess of the dawn. That's a personification of a natural event that filled us with wonder as ancient people. And this capacity to uh, to reach into the heart of every single human being is storytelling. I mean, that that's what it is. And every story, whether it's called a myth, you know, like the, well, I guess the, the Hobbit wouldn't be called a myth, it'd be called, you know, a story at this point, but um, whether it's called a myth, like some of the Greek myths or, just a good story or a novel they're always touching on these basic human voices instincts longings desires expressions themes, themes. even yeah. yeah exactly these are all all words for that so um i think they're interchangeable mm-hmm. but uh yeah i don't know where i was going with that before but i would like to talk a little bit about the um the lilith Mythology, if now would be a good time yeah. for that. Sorry, our microphone, your microphone is it not, weird? It, 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 <laughs> Should I come closer? Having trouble keeping it up. It okay. keeps like sagging, keeps dipping. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> it's not you. Trust oh, thank goodness. Me. <laughs> yes, Lilith. Yeah. I would love to talk about Lilith. Okay, great. So, uh, the reason I wanted to talk about Lilith today is, as an example is because she's really close to me. She's one of the voices of me that um, I've only recently come to know. So I'll just ground it in my own personal experience first. Um, you know, I, I've been someone who has really identified, like I said, with the intellectual, with the, um, the kind of warrior-esque go-get'em energy. And um, and with I'm a, an eternal optimist, so there's this, you know, I've, I kind of have an easygoing, bright look <laughs> on life, and always have. Mm. And those who have been the voices of me, and we could put names to them or mythological characters to them, uh, but those have been the voices of me that have predominated in my world. And so when I had this call to adventure, this uh, leaving home, if you will, um, when I felt like I was living a too small story, one of the places that I immediately uh, went to was uh, an apprenticeship, just a metaphorical apprenticeship with the dark. 
Mm. with all of myself that I don't know, with uh, voices that maybe don't want to be optimistic, (laughs) Mm. with uh, aspects of self that have been long exiled. And I had, this is not a rational, you know, like you can't think through this. I just knew that, hey, there's more, so let me turn to a place that I've never explored in myself. And who was lurking there in the shadow was Lilith. Um, and so she is, she's a powerful one. Uh, so many of you uh, may have heard, Lilith is actually a mythological character that, that um, used to be way, way more well-known, I feel like, than she is now. And so some of you may have heard of her from Hebrew mythology, Lilith. Uh, was known in, um, this is uh, the pre-Old Testament work, as um, uh, the first wife of Adam. And Hmm. when we hear that word Lilith, those of you that have heard it, uh, you might associate her with like a demon goddess, or uh, she's various, she's kind of like a, um, a, a demon prostitute. So she's associated with just... Um, well, actually, she's she's associated with giving priests and monks wet dreams and their need to ward her away. Mm. So she was the the just labeled as the naughty temptress, temptress, mm-hmm. exactly the temptress one. And uh, and so I'll I'll tell you the story. The first time that she actually was. Uh, spoken about, or the first actual written record of Lilith was in Sumerian uh, legend. And she was Anana's handmaiden. So Anana was the life, death life goddess. She was the sun goddess of that time. And Lilith was her handmaiden or temple priestess, who at that time, when it was a matriarchal society, goddess worshiping, this is pre agriculture, right? Um, pre-solar deity time, pre-Roman, uh, pre-Grecian. Uh, an, uh, the, the way in which the goddess was worshipped was through sacred sexual rites. So Lilith, being the handmaiden of Inanna, would be the one that would go out into the fields and call the men in for the sacred sexual rites, for the time to worship. And you can actually track then uh, the onset of patriarchy when her story became subverted to uh, to this wanton sex demoness. Okay, hold on. <laughs> First, I want to know, if you, do you know any specifics about sac- sacred sexual rights at that time or like what that looked like or meant? Well, I do know, you know, at some, in terms of the way that it was done in ancient Sumeria, not necessarily, although I've studied sacred sexual rites elsewhere, mm-hmm. and they are a celebration of uh, the basic principle of life, which of course is new life, it's conception, it's uh, union, it's coming together, it's a, it's a way of honoring the power that is present in all things. I mean, if you imagine yourself back at that time when, uh, you know, there wasn't a lot of, again, scientific knowledge of, and we still have no idea, you know, Mm -hmm. how babies are created, where they Mm. come from, we still have no idea. But you can imagine the awe Mm -hmm. and the reverence for the, the, the mother, for the woman, to be able to not only uh, create life, 
inside of their bodies, but also to choose when that life comes in and to be a, a keeper also of death, which would be the letting of the menses every month. So the basic, still today the most fundamental mysteries are this life and the birth and death phenomena. Mm -hmm. You know, that's still grounded in mystery. Mm -hmm. So the sacred sexual rites was a time to uh, actively invoke that creative life force energy in as a way of honoring the the deities that be the the mother goddess and you know they took different forms in different cultures but that's what i understand yeah and i just want to um maybe put a some magnification on Mm -hmm. the fact that women were you know when we talk about the temple priestess and you you say she went out in the field and she chose the men. So mm-hmm. this was something that it, it's hard to imagine in the frame that it's okay in the frame that we have um, today, mm-hmm. like the cultural frame mm-hmm. lens that we're looking through. That like it, a whole different like 180 degree. Yeah. I mean, not even like we can't even compare it really. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's fascinating to read about this time and explore this time and really try to wrap our brains around mm-hmm. what did a world look like where women had full sexual autonomy. It wasn't attached to a specific man and she wasn't slut shamed and like yeah. all of these things. It's it's wild. So. Yeah, they were revered. Yeah. They were revered. Yeah. These temple priestesses. They were you know, and it was done in a way of wholeness, and I'll say that too. I mean, it's, it is it tr- is tricky, if not impossible, to imagine a world like that because we live in a world that has subverted and twisted and confused, uh, you know, again, these very basic, very beautiful human uh, experiences, I guess mm-hmm. I want to say. Um, and, you know, um, I just interviewed this French obstetrician Michelle Odant and we got a little bit into um and he's we were talking all about birth and you know he doesn't create any distinction between birth and sex Mm -hmm. it's like he (laughs) calls it the you know sperm ejection reflex and there's the fetal ejection reflex and Mm. it's the same chemistry and it's the same functioning and it's you know i always talk about the connections between birth and sex and it's no 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 connection it just is Uh it's all one yes um and so that you know thinking about that oh shit where was i going i had like this brilliant point (laughs) oh my god i need more sleep um birth yeah anyways oh transcendent experiences Uh so i started to ask him about he has a book called you know um the highway to transcendence um about orgasm and i was asking like is it essential for humans to experience ecstasy and transcendence? Mm -hmm. And, you know, we know that that can be part of the birth process and actually it must be Mm -hmm. for an truly undisturbed, um, fully functioning, meaning like everything's activated, everything's easeful kind of birth experience 
there is this otherworldly transcending space and time. And so he, what he also said is like sexuality, that that's also natural. Like that's where we can go to these transcendent and ecstatic places. Um, but that's been extracted. So mm-hmm. the, the holy, the sacred aspects of it, um, it's been demonized. Yep. Yeah. And shamed, and you know, shamed, to be yeah. able to really be in the full ecstatic experience of an orgasm. You know, I, you probably know this more, but I know many female friends who are able to reach orgasm and then find themselves with twinges of shame. And, you know, I, I certainly did when I would masturbate back in middle school, you know, it's mm-hmm. just like there were these moments of, ooh, should I have done that? Mm-hmm. So it's a totally different context now. And the other piece that's coming to me about the sacred sexual rights is that it was understood that this offering, this ecstasy was not, again, for the self. It was for... Uh, the world. It mm-hmm. was to be in service. It was to feed the goddess mm-hmm. or the gods. It was to make oneself good food for the earth is mm-hmm. another way to say it. So the great rites were not uh, narcissistic. Uh, uh, yeah, they the, the whole self-centric ideas weren't even present at these rites. They were done it was understood that orgasms in general were for the benefit and the beauty and the uh, the the creativity of life. I mean, that just is such a different yeah, the, view. Yeah, the distinction that's coming to me is like an offering versus consuming something. Like right, right now, sex is all, you know, it's, we see it through this consumer lens mm-hmm. and it's, you know, the, the kind of belief system story is like, the man gets the woman mm. and consumes her, you know. Right. Or the yeah. goal-oriented orgasm. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's a similar kind yeah. of needy energy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is Lilith. This is Lilith in her original form. And, and then, you know, like many of these similar archetypes, I mean, Mary Magdalene being another, you know, there's a number of them, right, that end up being slut-shamed mm-hmm. <laughs> for their their sacred connection to the erotic. Uh, Lilith in Hebrew mythology, like I said, was Adam's first wife. And as the myth goes, Lilith was, um, uh, well, she was slightly, she was sovereign. I was going to say headstrong because I'm joking, but I don't want to mess up the... Um, the 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 purity actually of her of her embody of her mythology she uh was in touch with her sovereignty as a woman and adam wanted her to always be on the bottom this is literally in in their sexual intercourse this is literally how what you can read in the myths that Mm. adam was uh interested in lilith being submissive to the male sex and at this point god had made both Lilith and Adam um, equal out of the same material. So this is contrasting the later Eve myth where Eve was made out of one of Adam's ribs. So they were created equal. So Lilith would say, well, we're made of the same material. Mm. We are equal. You know, I will not submit to you. And as the story goes, they got in all sorts of arguments. Their task was to name the creatures in the garden. And of course, they fought over whose name would go and you know it was one of these power struggle scenarios where Lilith was confronted with a situation where she was either asked to surrender her sovereignty as a woman or um, or leave 
and she chose to leave. So Lilith goes into exile by the, the Red Sea. She's in a cave there at the Red Sea. And, and Adam calls God up and he says, hey, buddy, you know, like this lady that, that uh, you know, you created with me is, is a problem and, um, and I need you to fix it. So Adam sent, or so God sent uh, angels to Lilith that said, um, if you do not return to Adam to be his submissive wife, then it was something like 1,000 of your children will die a day or something, some crazy number, right? And she, she uh, n- knew that to go back would mean she was out of integrity, mm. that she couldn't live a life like that. So she chose exile at whatever cost. And, uh, and so Adam made Eve mm. to be submissive to to the male, uh, which again is if we take the scope out of the myth and we look at it in a, in a historical context, we can see the exact moment when the patriarchal mindset needed to exile the goddess, needed to uh, label the most powerful creative force in the universe as lesser than mm-hmm. or evil even. So she became, Lilith becomes a grieving demon who not only uh, suffers the loss of her children, which one of the ways we can look at that is the goddess-worshipping people were sacrificed in that moment, mm-hmm. in, in, in that time. Not only did she grieve that loss and have to feel the rage and the injustice of that, but she also uh, really had to, um, she ended up becoming a, deem- a baby killer or slayer. So for thousands of years, uh, after that point, mothers would place amulets on their children to ward Lilith away. And actually the, the word Lilith or lullaby comes from Lilith, which was a song sung to children before they went to sleep so mm-hmm. that Lilith wouldn't take their life. And uh, like I said, priests wore mala beads around their genitals at night so they wouldn't get wet dreams, which were all Lilith related. So we have that full trajectory of the exiled feminine mm-hmm. which is uh yeah requiring in many ways us to look at her again and bring her back so yeah <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah i mean that that story yeah it, it's a great illustration of that transition um which happened yeah, we, we don't have to get into all the history, but I'm fascinated mm-hmm. by it. It mm-hmm. sort of just kind of popped up and there was this just interesting shift. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and all of the mythologies were similarly modified yep. to become, you know, again, patriarchal in that way. Um, yeah. <laughs> at the so, expense of the erotic. I mean, it's at the expense of the erotic. Yeah. Pretty much uniformly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, so grounding it a little bit yeah. in your experience, how is, you know, in your discovery of this archetype of Lilith, how is that bringing new flavors, new expressions to your world? Mm-hmm. Well, one of the ways that she really comes in now is uh, in the full recognition that there are aspects of the feminine that have been exiled, mm-hmm. that do not belong in our society. I started off, if we started off chatting about the, the imagination, you know, that's, that's an aspect that I consider uh, more um, f- 
female encoded, if you will, than than male, and I'm not talking gender here, mm-hmm. uh, that has been exiled in our in our community and our society. And part of what Lilith invites us into as an archetype is to feel the grief and the loss of that, mm-hmm. to really feel it, and to really contemplate, not from a place of just total. Um, uh, helplessness, but from a place of needing to be realistic about w- the ways in which these things that are lost, at what cost, at what cost. So I'm invited into, through that voice, uh, really feel the exiled ones. And she also invites me into, uh, like I said, I, I've, I've been more identified with like the the magnetic, alluring feminine, the um, the good girl, the optimist. And I believe we're at a time, and this I'm learning through Lilith, in our uh, culture, in our in our own uh, world, I mentioned the, glo- the, the great turning time, where uh, we can't afford to not uh, welcome back some of these exiled pieces. For men and women, you mm-hmm. know, some of these ways in which society has said, no, you can't be that. You can't look that way. You can't walk that way. You can't have sex and enjoy it. You know, we can't actually afford for that to continue, mm-hmm. that it is to the detriment of our planet. So Lilith is inviting me into an experience of my own, uh, the ways in which I can be dangerous mm. to the status quo. Mm-hmm. And that's not from a place of rage or reactivity or aggression, mm-hmm. but again, from that overflowing wholeness to know, oh, she belongs at my table. And she has a voice that is uh, no longer uh, going to be silenced. Mm-hmm. So those are her, the ways that she shows up kind of in her fierce form. And then she's also helping me to reconnect with my own uh, sacred and ancient connection to the temple priestess, which is the one who uh, revels in the erotic. Mm-hmm. And that is uh, uh yeah, in that, I mean, I can't really say it any other way, that revels in the erotic, that knows that that is a sacred act mm-hmm. and that that too is a spiritual practice. Mm-hmm. And really, again, letting that come not from a place of wanting to show everyone how sexually liberated I am. Um, it's not at all an outward display, although, you know, who knows, right? There's time <laughs> for everything. Um, but it is just a, it's a shift inside me that is... Uh, in some ways like a balancing of my own masculine and feminine forces that are saying what would it be like for me inside of my own relationship to embody the temple priestess for my man mm-hmm. to sometimes maybe you know adorn my room and light the candles and call him away from the fields and to call you know the great beauty and mystery of the creative act in to our lovemaking and it's I mean it's just been really beautiful that way Mm. so yum yeah yeah (laughs) um okay so i would love to also talk about artemis Mm. because that's the name of my school Mm -hmm. and and yeah i'm curious to hear your thoughts about her because 
what I know of her is that she embodies the masculine and she's sort of like yeah. equally balanced in the masculine and fem- feminine and she's said to be one in herself. Yes. Yeah. yeah. She's one of the the uh, virgin goddesses. Right? Yes. And by virgin, we mean sovereign yes. unto herself, whole unto herself, not celibate. Mm-hmm. She certainly wasn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so uh, Artemis is one of those more, you know, and when we start talking masculine, feminine, it's all really kind of dangerous territory, yeah. right? Because they're two sides of the same coin. They mm-hmm. never actually exist independently, mm. which is really, you know, kind of throws everything, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and Artemis was a twin, or her, her twin brother was Apollo, um, who was the sun god, right? So we have that already we're feeling that solar feminine that there could potentially be something like a solar feminine and a lunar masculine. You know, what these are levels of nuance, right? So Artemis being that solar feminine force that is, um, uh, you know, she carries the bow and arrow. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a phallic symbol. Mm-hmm. That is that, that concept of aiming true and uh, moving forward, that projectile energy. And also, you know, she's the, the goddess of the hunt and she's the goddess of the moon and she's the protectress of the wild. And that's the piece that I really start getting, ooh, the protectress of the wild. Mm-hmm. So wild creatures, yes, nature's forest, she, or nature in, in the forest specifically she loves, but what would that archetype be like to call on that protects our own wild? Mm-hmm. The wild of our bodies, our bodies will never be tame, no matter how much we, we try to. Mm -hmm. Um, our bodies will never be tamed so Artemis is the one if we think of a solar force one of the ways I think of Artemis is um, you are protecting but again you're not protecting from a place of reactivity or aggression Mm -hmm. you are protecting uh, that which is precious that which is sacred that there is a, a dance between uh, the value system, which is the wild, uh, moon-loving, uh, howling <laughs> body, and um, and and really needing to create a container for that, mm-hmm. and and to let that thrive and come to life. So Artemis is this this one of us that can protect the 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 inner wild. And, and that can also be the unknown, like the mm-hmm. mystery, the wilderness, you know, that stepping into that which cannot be seen, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. The mysteries, the deep mysteries. I mean, women, again, just to go back into those, the, the birth and, and death, uh, life, death, life cycles, right? We carry those in our bodies. So that is the deep mysteries and certainly Artemis and you know another way that I think about her is like uh, I love the phrase kittens got claws <laughs> you know I mean she's got cl- she's got claws and she you see a photo of Artemis and you know she's like her body is just banging beautiful <laughs> right she rarely wears clothing but she don't want to mess with her so there is a that dance between magnetic feminine fully embodied uh you know, I just imagine her moving through a forest and it's graceful and fluid. Mm-hmm. And the ferocity that is, um, you know, another way I look at the bow and arrow, it's about discernment, mm-hmm. right? So 
uh, yeah, to be fully aroused does actually require discernment, Mm -hmm. right? And that is the ways in which we navigate a very complex world. So, you know, what's interesting about Artemis is that she, um, and the same is true for all of these archetypes, they, like I said, they all are there, whether we have a direct relationship with them or not, whether we're aware of them or not. And they leak out in many, in many ways if we're not aware of them, if we're not turning to face them and engaging mm. in dialogue with them. And some of the ways that they move out is, um, you know, unskillful expressions or distortions of an original energy that's beautiful and pure. Mm-hmm. So the basic example of is like Lilith being the, the wanton temptress. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, in our modern world, like think of all of the ways in which sexuality in general is twisted and presented. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, the, it's too numerous to name. <laughs> Artemis, as an archetype, has been overly masculinized Mm -hmm. in some ways. She becomes the one who, if we're not in a relationship with our value system, which is what Artemis is about protecting, the Mm -hmm. the wild, the mysteries, if we're not there, then we can be in a distorted expression of her energy, which is the untouchable one. Yes. The the one that is... um, you know, moving forward at the at the expense of her wild, mm-hmm. instead of mm-hmm. in relationship to it, um, defensive, aggressive, cold, you mm-hmm. know, unrelational because she is sovereign. Mm-hmm. So there's, you know, it's it's it is a dance, and that's part of what I want to say about grounding. This is um, we all have we all have. Uh, characters whether they're from books or from history or from movies or even people in our lives that we're really drawn to and one of the ways that we can come into relationship with these archetypes is to begin to track those threads Mm -hmm. like for instance i have been obsessed with cleopatra (laughs) ever since i was really little Mm -hmm. and now that i'm really consciously tracking this temple priestess magnetic feminine archetype this one of me the lilith of me i'm noticing some really big similarities between cleopatra's ability to uh be in her just magnetic erotic and also be a woman in a a very um in a big place of service for Mm. her people actually Mm -hmm. so we all have these you know they're gonna come up and there'll be voices that are more obvious to us than others um but we're tracking both those threads and also the threads that might be twisted or distorted, um, shadowy mm-hmm. uh, voices of ones that we haven't fully let come to the forefront. Mm-hmm. We haven't wanted to look at or we've tried to push down in silence, whether it's that culture, you know, it's probably that cultural pressure, but then we take that on and. Yeah, silence we, the voices in ourselves yeah mm-hmm. yeah and it usually begins with like the one thing i am not is right right you know that's a big red flag the yeah. one thing i am not is this i will never be like that person <laughs> and then you know that's that's a good good piece to get into mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm, good stuff okay so we're running out of time. Mm-hmm. Is there any like last thoughts or anything else that you wanted to drop in? 
Yeah, I mean, I think just again, I'm I'm really looking to make this applicable, not as just you know my story or like nice theory, but as uh, a, a, like some grounded practices that could invite in some of this full blooming <laughs> into our mm-hmm. own humanity. And and one of them I just touched on, which is I think the first piece would be to to however you like to do it if you if you like to write or you like to move or maybe you like to do collages some kind of way hands-on way of um, fleshing out and discovering what are some of the major voices of me and what are some characters from you know again history or movies or or other people in my life that what are some of the themes that i'm starting to see um, and even if some of them you know so well, you know, just to do the, the, the practice, it's almost ceremonial in that it'll deepen the dialoguing. It'll deepen the relationship. So to, f- to flesh out these voices and even, like I said, going towards uh, and, and taking, checking out our quote unquote enemies. Um, co- the cosmologist Brian Swim talks about how uh, our enemies, when we move towards them, is uh, like a fulcrum point for our own evolution. So unless we turn towards those voices too, the one thing I am not or will never be is, and then maybe personifying or, or mythologizing is another way to say it, um, that voice or that character and seeing what that one of you has to say, that's an incredibly powerful practice to launch you into your own blooming. Great. So it's, there's some some ways of dancing with that. And um, yeah, and then whatever voice there that you feel is uh, not as known to you, one of the techniques that I use a lot is to in self-design ceremony and this does not have to be anything elaborate this is you and uh, like a vow that you're making with yourself in whatever sacred way you feel like you want to do that Um, it looks different for everyone right and it doesn't mean you have to wear priestess garb and you know (laughs) light a candle you know do it do it however however you want but to commit to enter into a relationship with that one to dialogue with one, that one, to even maybe ask questions. It sounds crazy, mm-hmm. but see what responses are there. And the purpose of all of this is to dive deeper into your own mythological understanding of yourself and your soul and what you're here to do mm-hmm. because it's distinct and unique for each one of us and um, absolutely uh, yours to offer. Mm. Great. Yeah. <laughs> so how, tell us what you have going on and how people can find you. Okay. Um, well, my, uh, my, re- my website, my website is therhythmway.com. And uh, right now I have a couple of programs that I run continuously. One of them, we work with the, uh, the, the elements. So space, air, fire, water, earth. And it's an online course called Waking the Wild Woman. And actually, you ha- are on there as a guest a guest teacher, I think, for the water element. Mm-hmm. Or was it fire? It was water. I think you were water. Yeah. Um, and it's a, an online journey where you can, each week is kind of a different elemental focus. And we'll pull in different archetypes. And there's different practices. And there's a manual that goes along with that. And I co-host that with a woman by the name of Sarah Durham-Wilson. And she's on Facebook as Do It Girl. So she's got a, a, a pretty 
fun Facebook page. You could check that out. But um, that course runs continuously, and we also do some live gatherings for women only that are about um, working with some of these deeper uh, soul images. And uh, I also am an archetypal astrologer, so I work with the charts specifically. Um, I do for both men and women, but when women contact me, we spend a lot of time with the the female uh, planetary archetypes and asteroids. Um, so we can kind of identify those archetypes in a, in a sky map that's mm. unique to you, and I have we have a good time doing that. And again, it's just another mirror for you to deepen into. So those are available on my website as well. And um, I also do some private mentorships. Those are for people who want to uh, really enter into the the underworld journey of the soul. So those that want to commit to leaving home to Mm. uh, follow that, uh, that call to adventure into perhaps something deeper. And um, yeah, they look different for everyone. But mm-hmm. if you're interested, feel free to contact me, please. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. I Thank you. you. I love you too. Mm-hmm.